Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If it's legal for a healthcare worker to conscientiously object to providing abortion care, can a provider consciously object to denying abortion care and be protected? That's the question University of San Diego law professor and bioethicist Dove Fox asks in his recent New York Times op-ed, What Will Happen If Doctors Defy the Law to Provide Abortions? In the few weeks since the Supreme Court took away the constitutional right to abortion and state bans have taken effect, reports have emerged of doctors delaying or denying care to patients with pregnancy complications to avoid criminal charges. We look at the medical and moral dilemmas they face with the overturning of Roe. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. In the few weeks since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, states have enacted a range of abortion bans. Eight states have outright bans, with four more poised to do the same. South Carolina and Ohio have instituted six-week bans, which is also before most people know they're pregnant. Several more states have bans tied up in the courts. Many of these new laws have no exceptions for rape or incest, only the life of the mother, which have created dilemmas for doctors and delays and denials of care and medication for patients. Joining me first with an overview of some of the stories that have already emerged, Sonia Sharp, a Metro reporter with the LA Times. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you on. One of the stories that has gotten a tremendous amount of attention is the 10-year-old rape survivor in Ohio who had to travel to Indiana to get an abortion. What happened there? Right. So um, just to be really clear, I have not personally reported on this case, but I followed it really closely. As you mentioned, Ohio is one of the states that has now a six week ban. This young girl um, arrived at her doctor's a couple of days after that ban took effect and was just a little bit more than six weeks pregnant after a rape. Uh, She was not able to get care in Ohio. She traveled to Indiana the doctor who cared for her in Indiana, uh, where she was able to get an abortion, uh, then relayed that anecdote to a reporter from the Indianapolis Star as part of a story that was about kind of people who were coming to Ohio in general. That anecdote exploded, uh, I think, because for many of us, this is the worst case scenario, right? This is kind of unimaginably terrifying, talking about a 10-year-old child who's been raped and faces uh, these huge barriers to getting abortion care, which she needs. And the immediate response was uh, really on the right-wing news ecosystem. People were just kind of like, this is not true, this is fake. But of course, President Biden mentioned it when talking about the Dobbs decision. Uh, It got a lot of attention. And then the uh, Columbus Dispatch 
actually reported from court where the man who had allegedly raped this child was arraigned for that crime. And so now we know for a fact that this has happened. And I think it's just caused a lot of um, anger and distress and soul searching around uh, what these bans mean for the most vulnerable people. Yeah, horrific for the 10-year-old. Remind us quickly what the doctor, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, who shared the anecdote, was investigated and also followed the reporting laws, is facing. Right. So so in 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 Indiana now, the government is like looking at uh, trying to strip her of her license for having provided this care. And it seems that they're sort of using uh, what we could call loopholes, like looking for ways in which she might have not crossed all her T's and dotted all her I's uh, in the process of providing this care to this child in terms of reporting it correctly or, or in other ways um, doing what she's required by law. There's not evidence that I've seen that she in fact failed to do that, but they are really uh, sort of, it seems like persecuting her for, for caring for this child um, in a way that again, is very distressing, especially I would say to those of us who are parents. Um, and, and imagining, God forbid, something like this happening to our ch- our children. The fallout has also extended to people who are enduring complicated miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies, women not getting the care they need. Can you tell us about some of these stories that have made it to the headlines? Right. So again, just to remind your listeners about what an ectopic pregnancy is. An ectopic pregnancy is a uh, any fertilized egg that implants outside of the uterus. Most often that's in a fallopian tube, but it can be in your liver. It can be in your spleen. It can be in your colon. Um, those pregnancies are never viable, but they are also extremely dangerous to the person who's carrying them. And they can become a medical emergency very, very fast. The treatment, the standard of care is always an abortion. But um, in a lot of cases now, doctors and their lawyers are concerned that if a a patient presents with an ectopic pregnancy or a missed miscarriage, right? A miscarriage that hasn't completed um, or with a septic uterus, that that patient isn't close enough yet to dying, that they fall under the quote unquote life of the mother exception to many of these abortion bans. And for that reason, we have already seen uh, in many places, patients whose fallopian tubes were allowed to rupture while they waited for care for an ectopic pregnancy. Patients who were allowed to hemorrhage for 24 hours until they neared the point of death um, so that their doctors and their doctor's lawyers felt comfortable providing care. We've seen people who have gone septic because of infections in their uterus from uh, an incomplete miscarriage or another pregnancy complication. And again, as somebody who can get pregnant um, and has been pregnant before, this is very, very terrifying because, uh, you don't get to choose if your pregnancy goes that way. These are sometimes very wanted pregnancies that just have taken a tragic turn. We're talking with Sonia Sharp, Metro reporter for the LA Times, about some of the stories that have emerged in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how it's affected a broad range of people's lives. Your reporting specifically for the LA Times, Sonia, has um, highlighted the effect of abortion bans on medications. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned with regard to medications that can be used in abortion, but are also prescribed for other purposes and the effect that that's had? 
Right. So I uh, thank you so much for um, highlighting my reporting. I specifically reported on a drug called methotrexate, uh, which is different from the drug that people will be familiar with from medication abortion, which is uh, misoprostol and mifepristone. Those are typically what's used in a medication abortion, which now account for about 50% of abortions of legal abortions in this country. Um, Methotrexate's different. It is. It was originally developed as a chemotherapy agent. It's still used that way, especially in uh, breast cancer. Um, but by the late 1950s, it they found that in much lower doses, it could be used to treat a whole range of autoimmune diseases from juvenile arthritis to lupus to psoriasis and Crohn's, Crohn's disease. And it is still used that way. That's its most common use case. It happens that this drug at higher doses can also cause miscarriage. And even though it's not formally prescribed that way, it's not FDA approved for that use, it is used off label very often to end ectopic pregnancies, which again, can never be viable. So that is actually a frontline treatment for ectopic pregnancy. Um, and because it has this kind of fairly uncommon off label use, many patients in the wake of the Dobbs decision who may have been taking uh, methotrexate for decades have found that their access to that drug is restricted, um, even though they are not using it in the doses that can be used uh, to cause a miscarriage or for that purpose at all. And I heard of one case in Texas of an eight-year-old child whose ability to get her medication for her juvenile arthritis was restricted because the pharmacist was concerned that she was of possible childbearing potential and therefore could not get her medication. And that's mm -hmm. something that unfortunately we've seen all over the country. Yeah. You also met a lupus patient named Becky Schwartz in Virginia where they do not have an outright ban, correct? Yeah. And that's an abortion. What, yeah. Correct. That's correct. There is no ban currently on abortion in Virginia. But there is so much kind of concern about various laws that might now be interpreted to in some way restrict medications like this, that in this case, the doctor and the prescribing the, the medical group said, we're not prescribing this drug to anyone anymore, because there is some language, I guess, in Virginia law that that they were understanding to mean that there could be restrictions on who is qualified to prescribe an abortive fashion. And even though this drug is only kind of rarely used in that manner, they felt that they were not any longer qualified to give out this drug. And so they just stopped giving it to anyone. And what kind of concerns did Beth have about losing access to this drug? How quickly can things go south? Well, that's a great question. You know, this drug is not only very effective, but it has relatively few side effects and it's also extremely cheap. So when you talk about um, people who take this and 5 million people in the United States take this drug, some of them are required by their insurance companies to take it until they fail at it before they can go on to a more expensive type of drug. Other people um, can't tolerate the side effects from um, drugs that might be used uh, for a similar treatment. And then there are people who really have life-threatening complications uh, with other uh, medications. And so this is kind of the middle ground for them. So um, for Ms. Schwartz, like her situation is a little bit, she's going to have to come off this medication much sooner than she anticipated and transition um, much more roughly to a drug that uh, may work better for her. But she knows that, for example, like 
her pain and her complications are going to flare in a very serious way um, when she has to wean off this drug faster. And for other folks that I spoke to who are concerned about losing access, they're not sure that there is another drug that they will be able to take uh, to control their, their disease. So now you've spoken to medical providers about how they're at odds uh, when it comes to following the law and honoring their oath, their Hippocratic oath. What have they shared with you? So I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear and concern about, you know, I spoke much more in, in this story to rheumatologists who mm-hmm. were feeling pinched about, you know, their ability. And these are people who are not actually uh, pro- providing abortion care. Um, and they were concerned that their patients would be harmed, that they would be harming their patients by um by being part of these delays or these denials of medication. But I think much more broadly, there is a lot of fear and concern from doctors who may need to provide, for example, an emergency uh, abortion care for someone who is experiencing uh, hemorrhage, right? Um, That they are are watching their patients be harmed in real time. And that they are in some cases working with lawyers um, who don't understand medical practice trying to interpret laws that are not written with biology or medicine in mind um, in a way that allows them to save lives. And that's just a very distressing position to be in. Sonia Sharp, a Metro reporter with the Los Angeles Times. Thank you so much for your overview. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, what are your reactions to what you're hearing? You can email your thoughts or questions to forum at kqed.org or post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. If you're a doctor, a pharmacist, a healthcare provider, how do you navigate your obligation to your patients and the law if you feel that they are at odds? You can also share that as well. After the break, we'll talk with doctors and a bioethicist, so stay with us for that. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Pickleball, the fastest growing sport in the U.S., is taking over park and rec centers all over California. We'll look at how and why pickleball has become an American obsession. And we want to hear from you. What do you love or don't love about pickleball? You can email forum at kqed.org or leave a voicemail about it at 415-553-3300. 
Today, we're looking at post-Roe America and talking about the medical and moral dilemmas doctors, abortion providers, other healthcare workers are facing. And joining me now is Dr. David Eisenberg, Associate Director at the Division of Family Planning in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Washington University in St. Louis, the School of Medicine there. Dr. Eisenberg, thank you for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. So tell us, what is Missouri's current abortion law now that Roe has been overturned? Well, unfortunately, the state of Missouri passed a law in 2019, and there were many laws that were already on the books over-regulating what is some of the simplest, safest healthcare service that anyone could seek or anyone could provide, and that's abortion care. Um, and that trigger ban from 2019's law went into effect sh very shortly after the Supreme Court decision on June 24th, and such that we can only provide abortion care to folks in the state of Missouri who are experiencing what's defined as a medical emergency, according to state law. And that's a very narrowly um, set up definition. It's not a well-crafted um, one with the um, input of physicians, but it was created by you know, model legislation that has been passed in state after state across this country and is unfortunately really, really um, creating chaos and really negative impacts on my patients and my colleagues here in the state of Missouri. Talk, so, talk about, yeah, how that's playing out in terms of the patient has to experience a medical emergency. How are you navigating the broadness, as you say, of that definition? Well, I will tell you that this is not a new definition. This was on the books for a while. And we are a state that has had state mandated um, waiting period that was 72 hours with the same physician doing the consent who does the actual abortion. And we were able to comply with all those rules and regulations for over a decade that I've been here in Missouri. But what happened in 2019 when this law went into effect and changed some of the definitions of what is an abortion, what's a medical emergency, we had to understand when could we waive that 72-hour waiting period and only if a medical emergency was present. And so we at my medical center have been providing abortion care for a long time for people in all kinds of circumstances, because let's be honest, pregnancy is a part of the human condition. And sometimes pregnancies don't work out well and people need abortion care. More than one in four people in their lifetime will need an abortion. And so we were used to kind of this medical emergency language being what we would use to determine when we have to waive the 72 hour waiting period. And so we've been able to operationalize that over the last few years in a way that makes it clear when someone, it, it's going to be dangerous to wait that long to end a pregnancy, that that's the circumstances under which we would let a patient still be able to have an abortion in the, the state of Missouri now after June 24th. So how has that affected your interactions with your patients these days? I will tell you that it's really challenging to be an obstetrician gynecologist in a state that is interfering in the practice of medicine. Um, you know, this legislative interference into the practice of medicine is not new. Um, what's new is my colleagues around the state who haven't had the experience that I've had of learning how to deal with these circumstances 
um, are now having to figure this out. And I've had, mm. you know, many conversations with emergency medicine providers, OB, other OBGYN physicians, family medicine doctors, rheumatologists, like the reporter Sonia was discussing, you know, who've had difficulty trying to figure out when and if they can take care of a patient who have felt like the simplest and safest approach for their own um, personal uh, um, liability or jeopardy, legal jeopardy is to punt those patients to a different provider. And in some cases to refer them out of state when you know they should be able to get their care at their local hospital, but they haven't been able to get it because of the way their hospital uh, is interpreting those rules and regulations. Who is most affected in Missouri by these recent changes? Who has borne the brunt as you've been able to see in your own experience? So I'll tell you a couple of different uh, examples of this. So number one, patients who are having a miscarriage, who are having what the medical term is a spontaneous abortion, are patients who are really suffering in ways that no one should have to suffer. I mean, the bottom line is when someone is presenting in the circumstances of a pregnancy loss, I mean, for the most part, they're having one of the worst days of their life. And if they're having an ectopic pregnancy where the pregnancy is outside the uterus, as um, Sonia was describing, that is a life-threatening circumstance and literally one of the worst days of someone's life. And I went to school and did my training for over 10 years to be able to be there to help people through those difficult days and help save their life or help them have the best possible health outcome under the circumstances they find themselves in. And now we're forced to deal with these circumstances where we have to worry if the care we know is best, what we know is the medical right decision could be legally the wrong decision. And, you know, these are really challenging circumstances where someone who's having a really horrible day and experiencing a medical emergency doesn't need someone to tell them, let me talk to my general counsel or let me talk to the hospital ethics committee before I do what I know to be the right thing to do. That's really, really negative care. And I'll give you a specific example, a patient of ours who we took care of, who was having a pregnancy loss, who the standard medical approach would be either wait and see, medical treatment with pills, the same pills we use for first trimester abortion care, um, and or a surgical procedure, what you might call a DNC or an aspiration to remove that pregnancy tissue. This is a, a, a woman who really wanted to avoid a pelvic exam. That's an extremely difficult thing for her. Um, and so we prescribed a medication that we administered in the office, mifepristone. She took it. And then in our standard practice that has been in place for years, she went to her local pharmacy to pick up the second medicine, the mesoprostol that she's supposed to administer to herself to pass the pregnancy at home in the setting that was most comfortable to her with her loved one around her. And she was unable to get that second medicine because the pharmacist was unwilling to fill the prescription, even though the pharmacist had no knowledge of why they were using this medicine. But because of this new reality, we are all trying to find a way forward in, the pharmacist is doing what they can to protect themselves and their organization. And it's just easier to say no. And I mean, what a horrible injury on top of injury for this person, right? And then the last thing I will say is we've done the research to show that folks who are less you know, financially well-off, people of color, indig indigenous populations are the people who suffer the most when there are more and more barriers put in the way of their care. We did an analysis that we published last year looking at 
states where abortion is restricted, like Missouri, versus states where abortion is protected, like California. And the maternal mortality rates have gone up so much in the last 20-something years that it's egregious in our country. But what we've seen is, especially amongst people of color and indigenous populations, in states where abortion is highly restricted, like Missouri, maternal mortality has gone up so much higher than it has for those other populations. But in states like California, where abortion care has been protected, maternal mortality ratios for all have gone down. And that's what we should be doing is following the medical evidence, not legislating what can or can't be provided for by a healthcare provider. Why are pharmacists and doctors reluctant? Can you just give me a sense of the range of penalties they face if they break the law in Missouri now? I am not a legal expert. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. Unfortunately, I've had all too much experience with the the legal system in Missouri because I've been an abortion provider in Missouri for over a decade. And what I know and understand is that it would be a class B felony. That's a criminal prosecution to provide an abortion to anyone other than a person experiencing the medical emergency exception that I was describing before. In addition to potential civil penalties, um, fines and loss of medical licensure, which of course is my career. And there's all kinds of consequences to those kinds of things to the individual clinician. If you are disciplined by a state uh, um, professional, you know, um, licensure board that gets, you know, shared with other states and other states where you're licensed, your license may be now in jeopardy, even though that state might be a state where abortion care is protected, such as Illinois, where I also provide care. Um, and then, of course, the institutions, the hospitals and, you know, healthcare centers um, are also concerned about their liability for being involved in what could be considered a criminal conspiracy in the state of Missouri. I mean, it is really hard to wrap your head around the kind of chaos and craziness that is going on in the state of Missouri. And I have been doing what I can to help my healthcare colleagues, um, you know, other clinicians, uh, health administrators, and others understand that we have to do what's right for our patients. Patients who are experiencing pregnancy are going to experience complications, and we have to put them first. David Eisenberg, Associate Professor, Associate Director in the Division of Family Planning in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Dr. Eisenberg, thank you. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. We have listeners writing in. Noel tweets that doctors have to defy medication restrictions is ridiculous. They need to be allowed to practice medicine for the health of their patients, no matter what the patient's reason is for using a drug. Bill writes, I suppose what will happen to doctors who provide abortions against the law will be the same sorts of things that happen to doctors who break other laws, arrest, jail, fines, and loss of medical license. Let me bring a couple more guests into the conversation to take listeners' comments and questions, which, of course, you can contribute by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by calling forum 866-733-733. Six seven eight six. Duff Fox is with us, a professor of law at the University of San Diego School of Law. Also recently wrote a piece in the New York Times asking what happens to doctors if they defy the law and try to provide abortions. Duff Fox, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jennifer Conti is also here, a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Stanford. Dr. Conti, really glad to have you as well. 
Thanks for having me as well. Happy to be here. Deb Fox, with regard to that last question about the landscape, basically, of legal repercussions, do you have anything to add to that in terms of what you hear providers facing, what types of things that they are facing with regard to punishment if they illegally, in the eyes of the law or the state, terminate a pregnancy? Well, even before the Supreme Court overruled Roe and so many states across the country prohibited that procedure, uh, doctors could be denied a job or fired from one if they work at a sectarian institution uh, that, that forbids the practice on moral grounds. That's no different still, even in states that allow abortion in certain areas of the country, particularly rural, rural ones, uh, where there may only be a sectarian institution within a large region. Uh, now, uh, doctors face a range of, of civil penalties and criminal punishments from $100 fines to life sentences in jail. Those felony convictions also come with collateral consequences that can include um, a, uh, a suspension of your license to practice medicine and disenfranchisement, being unable to vote in elections, including uh, including uh, for lawmakers uh, or ballot measures that would protect reproductive rights. And Dr. Condi, even in states where abortion remains legal before viability, like in Indiana, uh, where we're seeing Dr. Caitlin Bernard, the, abor- the abortion provider for the 10-year-old rape survivor being investigated, they are facing some significant challenges. You set up a GoFundMe campaign for Dr. Bernard. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think as Dr. Eisenberg, my colleague, said it uh, initially, physicians are scared. We have effectively created an environment and a situation where we are, for the first time, terrified to provide the care that we promised we would provide patients under the Hippocratic Oath, uh, putting their safety and their well-being first, especially in these complex situations, um, like he alluded to and like we've seen out of Ohio. And uh, Dr. Bernard is another one of our colleagues. I mean, we we are a tight community of um, abortion care providers, especially those of us who do, uh, you know, complex care. And just sort of talking with her behind the scenes and seeing what's going on, I mean, we're terrified and our hearts are broken because rapidly over the course of just, you know, a couple of weeks since Roe has fallen, she has gone from providing care in a state, mind you, where it is legal to provide abortion up until 22 weeks um, and just doing her job for um, for someone who I, I don't think you can imagine a worst case scenario, a child who has been raped and impregnated and at a gestational age that is not controversial, you know, six and a half weeks, um, and just been lambasted in the media and um, have been threatened as a result. I mean, you can imagine what happens when Fox News puts your face up on the news. So um, so funds so have we, been going to things yeah. like security detail and legal fees? That's right. So we've, we're up at about $309,000 right now, which seems like a lot, but it's really just starting to, uh, it's starting to just chip away essentially at the legal, the security, um, and other protection fees Mm. that she and her family need. Well, let me go to caller Andy in Santa Barbara. Hi, Andy. You're on. Hi. Um, Thank you very much for uh, the diversity of of views. Uh, The gentleman who was talking um, much earlier about the Supreme Court being moderate just leaves my blood boiling. Uh, Our country is 
going in a direction more akin to Iran in terms of uh, religious fundamentalism and extremism than than this being a moderate position. And with respect to religious freedom, um, you know, the court right now is 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 majority Roman Catholic uh, judges, justices on the bench. And, um, you know, this is contrary to my religious freedom as a Jew, the, the Dobbs decision. Uh, I mean, the woman's life and well-being comes before the fetus, period, the end. Now, you have a contrary viewpoint. You can have a contrary viewpoint, but you're forcing it upon everybody. Mm. Our country was founded by mostly Christians who were fleeing persecution by other Christians. This isn't going to go well in the long run for anybody. Uh, you know, I, I just well, Andy, I think actually uh, Dove Fox has has some thoughts about what you're saying, and we're approaching a break. But Dove, you talk about the need for a federal statute to protect clinician conscience. What do you mean by that? There is one that does. What are you proposing that's different? Well, a 1973 law called the Church Amendment was enacted with broad bipartisan support uh, to protect not just refusers, but providers who uh, practiced abortion uh, con- uh, in accordance with their moral convictions. That law protects only those who work at federally funded institutions and only for employment related consequences. I- I'm proposing a similar law with much uh greater enforcement power uh, against uh, civil and criminal uh, punishments that would significantly reduce those sanctions that providers face uh, for offering clinically approved care, like uh, abortion in most circumstances, uh, in the name of conscience. Hmm. Well, we will hear more about that after the break. Again, we're talking with Dove Fox, professor of law at the University of San Diego School of Law, and Dr. Jennifer Conti of Stanford University, a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology there. And of course, you, our listeners, will get more, get to more of your comments and calls after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about 
The medical and moral dilemmas doctors, healthcare providers, abortion providers are facing in post-Roe America. Dr. Jennifer Conti is with us, a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Stanford, and Dove Fox, whose piece, What Will Happen If Doctors Defy the Law to Provide Abortions, was in the New York Times recently. Fox is a professor of law at the University of San Diego School of Law and author of Medical Disobedience and Birth Rights and Wrongs, How Medicine and Technology are remaking reproduction and the law. You, our listeners, can join the conversation by emailing your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, calling us 866-733-6786, or by finding us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Deb, I, I want to go back to you quickly. How did conscientious refusal uh, to be able to object on moral and religious grounds come about in the medical field originally? Well, abortion is a deeply divisive issue. And when the Supreme Court protected abortion rights in Roe v. Wade, uh, refusal rights were a way for dissenters to object, to voice their minority views that had lost out in the public square, uh, and also to moderate what many saw as going too far in the other direction. So this protected uh, doctors and nurses who didn't want to participate in abortion care and also give them space to voice their moral views in a pluralistic society. Uh, what was originally envisioned as a more balanced protection for clinician conscience for refusers and providers alike in that 1973 law that would protect not just those who refuse on sanctity of life grounds, but also those like Dr. Eisenberg who want to heal patients and uh, relieve their suffering, uh, promote their health, even save their lives. Um, the states, in the wake of that law over the next 10, 20 years, very quickly passed very different kinds of conscience protections in a couple of respects. One, they went much farther beyond just those who engage hands-on in clinical care to include everything from pharmacists to healthcare insurance providers, people who check you in at a hospital, um, also uh, to protect not just your job, uh, but also against civil and criminal penalties that refusers might face for uh, patient abandonment or endangering patients or medical malpractice. If they refuse care in violation of uh, standards of care uh, provided by the medical practice, uh, by their specialty, by the state law, and harm patients in predictable and serious ways. And uh, these laws now enact as one-way uh, uh, conscience protections uh, in, in states that immunize almost fully and completely uh, doctors uh, who enjoy these protections don't even have to tell their patients that they are refusing, that they uh, mm -hmm. are conscientious objectors. So patients can go for time-sensitive care and, and, and quite often be surprised that they are denied uh, an abortion they need in short order or emergency contraception, um, anything uh, as well as things like puberty blockers um, or aid in dying uh, drugs to hasten death with dignity. Uh, it supplies to a wide range of practices. So you're saying that now that there's no longer a constitutional right to abortion, that states have enacted these bans, you'd like to see protections for people who actually provide care or provide abortion care because they consciously object to this denial. That's what you'd like to see, Dev Fox? 
Exactly. And I think there are precedents. One, in the refusal laws that already exist in almost every state today. So this would just be a parallel to protect not just uh, refusers, but also providers who have conscientious grounds to engage in medical practice. Um, uh, another, another parallel is, for example, the kinds of leniency that um, people who engage in mercy killings often get from the murder laws. Uh, they are prosecuted for first or second degree murder, but the penalties are almost always reduced substantially to something like voluntary uh, 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 manslaughter uh, in accordance with our appreciation for the reasons being different. Uh, and more worthy, more noble. Mm. Here, here too, what I am proposing is a significant reduction in the civil, uh, criminal penalties, as well as those collateral consequences like felony disenfranchisement and suspension or even permanent uh, 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 denial of, of lic licensure to practice medicine. Now, this wouldn't be available to every single clinician who provides prohibited care in the name of conscience. It would be limited to those who have genuine moral reasons for doing so, those like Dr. Eisenberg, who have devoted their professional lives to healing, promoting health, relieving suffering. It would also be limited to medically indicated practices, those whose benefits have been proven to outweigh their harms through longstanding practice uh, or you know, FDA approved uh, studies. And finally, it would have to it would have to be a cover informed consent. So it would only be for practices where uh, where where patients or an appropriate surrogate do actually agree to have that care provided. So this wouldn't be for those mercy killings under pressurized circumstances. A doctor couldn't claim conscience and and get this sort of mitigation, a defense of medical disobedience for that. Well, let me go to caller Jared uh, in the East Bay. Hi, Jared. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, my question is this. Uh, if somebody pretends to practice medicine and they're not licensed and they make a prescription and kills somebody, they can be charged with murder. Now, if a judge who has no medical training makes a law that blanket, um, does a blanket prescription and a woman who may have been saved with an abortion dies, did that judge enter into, or the doctor that refused to do the abortion, enter into a conspiracy to commit murder? Well, uh, let me, well, Deb, if you want to take Jared's question, but I think also the broader point that Jared is making here is the lack of knowledge uh, that some of the people who are interpreting or making the laws have with regard to medical practice that may also contribute to what you're saying there as a reason for doctors to be able to have some protections. I think there are two points. One is that judges, uh, courts, juries as well, have broad discretion. Uh, to be lenient with respect to especially criminal sentences. Uh, it is about a century since courts just invented affirmative defenses that are very familiar to us now, things like self-defense, defense of others, the insanity defense, duress. Um, these are ways in which courts exercise their discretion to be just and offer leniency. And that's the sort of uh, thing I'm suggesting here. The other, the other important point I think here is we are in a, it, well, in a sense, a very new landscape, but also an old one. Before Roe, there was also this question 
of what if doctors or people who are not doctors provide illegal care and they do so in what would be considered negligent ways that harm people? Can the patient sue for medical malpractice? Or would, because they're, they're, they, they pursued something that was outside the realm, the, the realm of the law, would they be assumed to, well, assume the risk themselves, much like you would if a drug dealer rips you off and breaches your a contract? You can't go and sue in a court. Um, these are really hard questions that we faced before Roe, and now 50 years later, they're before us again. Dr. Conti, what do you think of what uh, Duff Ox is proposing here? I mean, I think this is fascinating. I just in clinical practice on the ground for years have been aware of and, you know, abiding by the provisions of conscientious objection, which all of our governing bodies, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology have taken position statements on. Because again, the goal here is to respect in, in this country, um, everyone's freedom to express themselves and to um, live by, you know, their own personal freedoms. Uh, and it seems like it's just theoretical at this point, but I think it's a very fascinating topic that I think if, you know, if put into action, plenty of providers would, would agree with and sign up for. If I could jump in for yeah, a moment. Go ahead. So sorry. One, one limitation, I think, on, on those provisions that Dr. Conti just mentioned now is there are no limits on the kinds of burdens or harms that those refusal protections can impose on third parties. So it, today, that is usually that usually means patients like the ones Dr. Eisenberg mentioned, those who aren't well off, who live in rural areas, who are poor, women of color who need care and are denied it, including time-sensitive care, when a lot of refusers don't give any advance notice, and the patients are left with the fallout of the care they didn't get that they needed. Um, so some people might say, well, protections for refusers would also impose costs. Um, well, that might be the case if it costs money to get, a, get an operating room and provide medical staff, but I think there are ways to deal with those costs rather than deny the kinds of freedoms of conscience that Dr. Conti just mentioned. And also, a lot of these services might not be very expensive. Certainly, uh, prescription drugs, they, that requires no more than a script pad for things like medication, abortion, emergency contraception, birth control pills, aid and dying drugs, puberty blockers, and other procedures are pretty cost-free add-ons, uh, things um, like uh, a tubal ligation to follow an already scheduled cesarean section. So the cost might actually not be that great. Well, Robin tweets, doesn't the definition of emergency medical condition in the U.S. include that it could reasonably be expected to result in serious impairment to a bodily function or serious dysfunction of a body part? A dangerous pregnancy cannot just be life-threatening to the mom, but can also impact her ability to get pregnant again. Dr. Conti, your thoughts on what Robin is saying here, and I think it also gets back to a frustration that you've expressed in terms of legislation that's emerged governing abortion that really is not very well medically sourced. Right. I mean, let's make no mistake about it. I feel like we are in now a legal landscape where we are debating logic games because of the purposefully ambiguous wording in these laws. Um, these are legislators pretending to understand the art of medicine. And, and what you see as a result of that is providers um, not being sure when the patient is sick enough to act and and 
essentially watching patients in some situations like we're seeing come out of Texas and some other stories right now um, since Roe fell, where we're just watching patients become sicker and sicker and debating when is sick enough to provide essential health care. And that is what happens when you have abortion bans with meaningless, quote unquote, exceptions, because for real life situations in real with real people, there are nuances that these laws just could not potentially capture. Um, and that is why they need to get out of the exam room. Yeah, I think there was an example of a person who needed medication for a tumor, but they weren't imminently on death's door. And so there was a question about whether or not they could get it uh, because the the medication or the tumor was in a place that could affect someone's ability to bear children. Um, Beth writes, no medical professional in Beth's view should provide an abortion for any reason other than to save the mother's life or for rape or incest. I think what well, you're talking about here is how save the mother's life is. So if enough. I could give an example here, that what I like to talk about when people bring this up is how incredibly, I like to give a concrete example of how nuanced this is. So I'm in a full scope OBGYN. I provide complex abortion care. I deliver babies. And um, imagine a situation where someone has a very desired pregnancy. They've just delivered their baby at term and now they've got a postpartum hemorrhage. This happens frequently in the US. There is a very fine line where in, in an emergency like a hemorrhage, we are trying to determine if someone is stable enough to go get life-saving care, which is something called a uterine artery embolization. And they have to be transported to a different part of the hospital to get that. But you also have to uh, determine if not doing that means that they would die and if doing it would risk uh, potential infertility. And so this is a scenario where the stakes are super, super high, everything is desired, and even then it's hard for us to make that decision. And so if you consider that, and then you consider these other scenarios where maybe the stakes aren't as high, it's not a desired pregnancy, um, you know, a woman's life isn't in as clear of danger, you can sort of understand how it isn't as black and white as some people like this, this caller or this um, uh, person tweeting in might imagine. In real life, it is very, very complex. And you also don't have time to, um, to debate this. Well, Joelle writes, I woke up in the middle of the night hemorrhaging, having been pregnant for a couple of months by the time I got to the hospital. I had orthostatic hypotension. Had I not been able to have an abortion, I would have died. The baby was already beyond saving, or I could have died. The baby was already beyond saving, but I was not. I worry about women who will be made to wait until they are on the brink of death. We're talking about the medical and moral dilemmas of patients and doctors in a post-Roe America, and you are listening to Forum. I mean a Kim. Let me go to Nancy in San Carlos. Hi, Nancy. Hi, good morning. Um, I don't think in any of these discussions I've heard any mention of HIPAA, which is supposed to help hopefully guarantee, but at least encourage some degree of privacy uh, in our um, medical activities and appointments and so forth. Um, particularly when the Texas law was passed, it occurred to me that how do all these people who have nothing to do really with this person's uh, healthcare, learning mm. that they had, you know, had had one. Um, it seems to be against the laws of privacy that we already have, and I don't know how that would apply in other states. And I don't know anything about their, um, uh, yeah. their laws or so forth. Duff Fox, 
for an answer? HIPAA? Dr. Conti, Dr. Dr. Conti, Conti might know uh, better. No, no, I was going to, well, she might, <laughs> but I was going to say Dr. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Conti mentioned more broadly that in the wake of this Supreme Court ruling, uh, we are fundamentally rewriting the relationship between the legal system and the medical profession. And I think that extends to considerations of privacy and the very expectations that par- that patients uh can have uh, for the people who they go to seek out care from. I think privacy is, is, is another one of these areas where we are just rethinking the, the, both the, the, uh, the role that the law has over doctors as experts, as those who are in the know about how to uh, discharge their obligation to care for patients' interests uh, in coordination with those patients' wishes, which includes their privacy rights as well. These are uncharted waters. They're hard questions that, that we don't yet have answers to. Well, Pete tweets, instead of bowing to these insane laws, the situation in Missouri and other states calls for civil disobedience and mass. 80% of the population is opposed to the Supreme Court ruling on Roe. Where is the forceful moral leadership? Is it time? It's time for another women's march. Peter writes, a doctor's responsibility is foremost to their patient. They must do what's best for their patient despite the consequences. Professional societies and hospital systems must step up to help protect their doctors. Attempts to protect providers. Dr. Conti, are you seeing anything that's hopeful or generating um, that for you? Yeah. So recently, the American College of OBGYNs put out a statement uh, very clearly saying that they supported the and would protect Dr. Bernard. Um, I, but I, I'm going to be honest, I, I don't think we're seeing enough of it. Um, they made a statement, but her own institution hasn't made a statement yet. And uh, it took us, her colleagues on the back end, um, the people who who know her and who've worked with her and do this kind of work all over the country to sort of band together and, and do more of a grassroots um, call to action, not just protecting her, but trying to create some sort of fund that would protect providers who will put themselves out there despite this changing landscape. Well, Dr. Conti, appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you so much. Also, Duff Fox, professor of law, University of San Diego School of Law, appreciate you as well. Thank you. And Dr. Conti is of Stanford University. My thanks to our listeners for their thoughts. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment on Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.